We're going to jump right in. So Luke 1, 1 through 4, thank you, Brian, so much for reading that for us. Um, as we get ready here, like Brian said, this is a journey. Um, we discussed what we were going to do next after finishing Galatians. Galatians is six chapters. It took us about 19 or 20 weeks to get through those six chapters of Galatians. Uh, that was quite a, a a lot to, to bite off in one chunk, and, and uh, we made it through. It was great. It was a lot of fun, and originally, we had planned uh, to either go back to Colossians or forward into Ephesians, and <clears throat> as we started getting into it, we felt like, man, we are rehashing a lot of the same stuff that we just went through, uh, because a lot of Paul's letters that he wrote to the different areas and churches were very similar. And, and so not to say, well, we've done that. It's not important. Let's move on to something else. But just to give our brains a little bit of a, of a reprieve as dealing with Paul's letters so that we can come back to those and be reminded again of what he said there. And so then it was, well, what are we going to do then? And <clears throat> we looked at possibly doing something in the Old Testament um, we weren't really sure what we were going to do, and we were praying about it, studying through some different things, talking through some different things, and then we just said, what if, what if we went through Luke? And, uh, and there was just this desire to see Jesus, a desire to look at our Lord and, and to see him in his ministry and what he did, and, and so there's a lot of reasons why Luke, and so we're going to talk about that predominantly today. Why Luke, and, and why are we going here? And uh, Brian was perhaps being generous when he said 21 months. It could take us longer than that, um, but right now that is our estimated uh, time of arrival at the end of this book is about 21 months from now, and I'll just let you know up front uh, just so that you know that we're aware of this. Um, uh, some people would say it's really stupid for a church that's not even a year old to jump right into a book and a series that's going to last 21 months. Uh, that surely we should, you know, take things a little bit, you know, uh, do things in a little more bite-sized chunks so that we can, you know, naturally build momentum and, and you know, all these marketing strategy type stuff. And I just want to let you know we're aware of all that. We've just decided to completely ignore it. Um, because... Uh, we feel like this is where God is leading us. And uh, it's amazing to go through Galatians, hear Paul's cry to stay true to a pure and unadulterated gospel, not to get lost on a gospel of a different kind, and now to come back and remind ourselves who Jesus is, what he was up to, and what was going on. And so that's what this is kind of all about, and we're going to unpack that a little bit today. So the first sort of rule when coming and approaching something new in the Bible is to ask who is writing. I mean, that's one of the most important things to do right off the bat. And so we ask that question, who's writing? And the answer is Luke. Now, never in the book of Luke does it say, oh, by the way, my name is Luke and I'm writing. Uh, but we know from early church fathers who accepted this book as a work of Luke that this is, in fact, the work of Luke. And it is not a highly contested fact that it was Dr. Luke who wrote the book. Now, again, doctor, where do we get that? 
Because again, never in the book of Luke or in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, does it say, hey, I'm, my name is Luke, I'm writing this book, and just in case you didn't know one well-known fact about myself, I happen to be an MD. Um, never says that. Uh, the one indication that we do have of that is out of Colossians 4, verse 14, when Paul is ending his letter to the Colossians, a people whom Luke was very familiar and acquainted with, he says, hey, by the way, Dr. Luke sends his greeting as well. In, in other words, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And so this is our first really insight into who Luke is, that he was a doctor. And uh, as you read through Acts, as you read through Paul's letters, you find out that Paul was a much afflicted man. Um, he carried uh, in himself certain physical afflictions. We don't know the entire story there. It seems that he had some issues with his eyes. It seems that he possibly uh, had some other physical ailments beyond the fact that <laughs> Paul just kind of had a knack for getting beaten up, stoned, whipped, shipwrecked, left for dead. Um, all of these things which are very well documented and accounted throughout the New Testament. All things which lead to, man, it would be great to just have a traveling companion who happens to be a doctor. When uh, every time you enter into a new city, uh, you end up leaving with bruises and scars and head trauma. And uh, it seems that Luke happened to actually be Paul's personal physician who was his traveling companion, who went with him on his missionary journeys and was a part of the ministry team with Paul. Uh, we don't know when Luke fell in with Paul. It's presumed that possibly in Antioch that that happened, uh, but he became Paul's personal physician. As, as I said, the need was great to have one. So the second question is then, who is Luke, Dr. Luke, writing to? And the answer is right there in verses 1 through 4. As you see in verse 3 at the very end, it says, uh, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, we're going to dig into this a little bit. There's not a lot known about Theophilus. And here's where uh, there is actually some discrepancy. We don't know for certain whether or not Theophilus is a real person. Um, some historians and scholars and theologians believe that Luke was writing to a sort of personified person. And, and so the name Theophilus is Greek. It literally means friend of God. And so some people would say that Luke was, in a sense, writing to all the friends of God. We understand that Theophilus, from this first section here, has already received word about Jesus. The gospel has been proclaimed to him. He's been taught certain things about Jesus. And now Luke is writing this so that Theophilus, as it says in verse 4, may have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. Now, it could go either way. 
Perhaps Luke is writing to this personified person, all the friends of God who have received the gospel, who have received certain uh, teachings about Jesus so that they may have certainty about what was taught. We know we receive it in that way, certainly. Uh, Other people believe that Theophilus was a real person, and part of that has to do with the phrase that Paul uses in addressing him, the title. It it literally is a title, Most Excellent Theophilus. It's not out of uh, Wayne's world, right? Um, This didn't... That was not the vernacular back then. Literally, the, the original language that's used there, most excellent, is, is the same language that's used in other places in Acts, through the rest of the Gospels and the New Testament, to address people who are in positions of power and authority. And so some theologians and scholars believe that Theophilus was actually a person of high standing social status who had some kind of uh, recognized position of authority and was a friend of Luke's and possibly even funded Luke going and journeying back to Jerusalem to interview and investigate the history of Jesus and write this account. Literally, the closest thing that we have to a documentary of Jesus' life. And so we don't know for certain who this is, several theories, but uh, the language here is is almost as if we would say to a judge, your honor, uh, or someone in the UK to a magistrate, your excellency, or, or something like that. And, and so, a lot of speculation there, um, but that part isn't entirely important, but it's good for us to know, okay, who is Luke writing to? And we know he's writing to people who have received, or someone at least, who has received the gospel. Um, it doesn't really matter, my opinion. I think Theophilus was a real person, um, but that doesn't really have a bearing on what we're teaching here, or um, I think I just like to think that he was. And and part of that has to do with Luke being a doctor. Part of that has to do with the credibility of these factual eyewitness accounts that he's documenting something. And to me, it just seems weird that he would then postulate this personified person instead of writing it actually to someone named Theophilus. So my opinion You can study it out yourself and think about it, and then we can all get to heaven and be surprised. So, like I said, some people believe that Theophilus is actually the one funding Luke to go. Uh, Other people think that he gave up his livelihood as a doctor and funded it himself. Again, not entirely relevant, but interesting to note. Uh, Either way, what we have here in the book of Luke and also in the book of Acts, which some people believe were actually one book originally and it was separated, or it's Luke 1, Luke 2, um, but Luke 2 really dealing with the history of the church, and so it was called Acts, the Acts of the Church. Um, But both of these, written by Luke, uh, are really the final report of Luke's work in investigating and interviewing eyewitnesses. And if you just add up, if you just do a chapter count, a page count of Luke and Acts, uh, Luke, even beyond Paul, actually has written the most 
for us that's recorded in the New Testament. I mean, just on a page count, a chapter count, there is more from Luke and Luke and Acts than there is from Paul in all of his letters in the New Testament. Another thing that's interesting about that is that tradition says that Luke was a Gentile. And if that's true, uh, we don't know for certain. Again, there's, you know, some scholars err on the side and say, no, there's reason to believe he was actually a Jew. But church tradition and the early church fathers, what we receive from them is that Luke was a Gentile. And we know that the thrust of Luke's gospel is for the Gentile world. And I'll explain that here in just a minute. But If that is true, that means that God, by the Holy Spirit, inspiring the authors and the writers of the Bible, him deciding in his providence, in his sovereignty, what would be included for us, it would be interesting to note that God chose and used a Gentile to record more chapters in the New Testament than he did um, a Jew. And that's just an interesting note. Again, it's speculation, uh, but it's just kind of fun. Also, and what we receive in hearing this documentive report from Luke, through Luke, through Acts, is Luke approaches this almost with a scientific method. And that lends itself to his background in being a physician, that he comes at it with a scientific mind, even in what he says here in the introduction, that he, uh, it seemed good to him to write an orderly account. And so one of the things that we know from the other three Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, and John, is that they are not necessarily completely orderly in their thrust. There are certain things that are being brought to the surface and highlighted for the hearer or the reader to see about Jesus. But Luke really wanted to come and say, okay, from incarnation to ascension or from conception to to ascension. Here is what happened in Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 1, you really get his own words for what his intent was for the first uh, report that he sent, which we have as Luke, because he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so really this first book, the book of Luke, really deals with everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. Um, In that we see more parables in the book of Luke than any of the other gospels. 24 parables in all in the book of Luke, and 18 of those 24 parables are unique to the book of Luke. And so we're going to get a really good view into Jesus' teaching as we journey through this, uh, because Luke is literally going to walk us from conception to ascension and then into early church history. So why Luke? Why this one? Why didn't we go Matthew or Mark or John? Um, before we can answer that, we kind of need to answer why are there four Gospels to begin with? The reason that we can ascertain besides, and I mean, again, this is a perfectly good answer, because God wanted it that way, right? That is a perfectly okay, legitimate answer, because God chose there to be four Gospels, done. Um, But 
what we do see in looking at the four Gospels is that each of the Gospels have unique traits. Again, church tradition and what we know in, in studying the different Gospels is that presumably Mark was actually the first gospel written. It's the shortest of the gospels. It's the easiest to digest. And Mark does not waste any time with uh, immaculate conception or any of that. He jumps right into, boom, here's Jesus, 30, 30 to 33 years old, in life and ministry. Here's his ministry. Here's his death. Here's his resurrection. That's the gospel. Here you go. And then it seems that Matthew and Luke both took what already existed in the Gospel of Mark and almost, uh, the best way I can say it is, um, you know how you have different layers of possibly a blueprint. And the first layer of the blueprint, you lay down and then you lay down another layer of paper, but you can see the first uh, blueprint through that second layer of paper, right? And then you can draw on that piece and lay another piece down and see all three. And it's almost as if Matthew and Luke took Mark's gospel record and then laid a sheet down over that and expounded on different aspects of that from their viewpoint. Okay, in a sense, maybe viewpoint is the wrong word, but uh, Matthew was there. So Matthew is one of the disciples. Uh, he was there with Jesus. It's an eyewitness account. Uh, Mark was not one of Jesus' disciples in the sense of the 12 apostles, but he was one of Jesus' disciples in the sense that there were more than 12 people following Jesus around all the time. Did you guys know that? Like some of these guys had families, um, uh, and at and we even know through studying the Gospels and even into Acts that there were actually 120 that were really tight. And then from that 120, there were the 12 apostles. And then even from the 12 apostles, there were the three, Peter, James, and John, that were like the closest of the closest. Okay? And then even beyond the 120 that were tight, there were literally thousands at any given time that followed Jesus throughout his, his life and ministry. Uh, and then there would be times like uh, <laughs> Jesus, uh, after feeding the 5,000, they all follow him across the sea. And like, Jesus, we woke up ready for breakfast and you were gone. It's lunchtime now. And uh, we were kind of hoping you could do another one of those loaves and fishes things. And Jesus goes, uh, yeah, I can feed you. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone ran away. So... Um, the thousands, the throngs, the multitudes that followed Jesus weren't really as committed. Uh, there were these 120, and it's presumed that Mark was a part of these 120. Uh, he was also considered the protege of Peter, and we actually think that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel uh, as written by or dictated to Mark. And so, anyways, interesting church history, gospel forensic kind of stuff going on there. Matthew lays his gospel over Mark's and writes specifically to the Jewish people. 
And so what you'll find in studying the book of Matthew that's unique to Mark and John and Luke is that Matthew's thrust of his gospel message is really to his own people, to the Jewish people, and highlighting um, the messianic fulfillment of Jesus' ministry and his life. And so when Matthew does a genealogy. He does it carefully to highlight that Jesus is descended from David and then from David to Abraham. And it's showing this royal line of Jesus' lineage that attaches him to royalty in the physical sense of being connected to the promise of uh, God to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. Um, interesting there. Um, Israel doesn't necessarily have a throne anymore. However, one of David's descendants, Jesus Christ, reigns eternally on the throne of the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so that's uh, Matthew is highlighting that in his gospel. Luke, however, does the same kind of deal, but writes his gospel with a thrust toward the Gentiles. And so in Luke, we see a more account that's really just written in a way that the Gentiles would receive it because it's written in the way and the form of their own writings. So the way Luke writes, he writes in a Greek style so that it's easily received by uh, the Gentiles. Um, And then John, of course, different from all the three Gospels. He was the beloved, possibly one of the youngest of the apostles um, and most impressionable in that sense that, that when he was walking with uh, Jesus, that, that he really was seeing everything from a different vantage point and viewpoint from the rest of the apostles. And his eyewitness view is more of an interpretation of the things that were happening in Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, showing us, here's what Jesus did, and here's what it means. Um, and, and it really shows Christ's eternal presence and, Luke, and work. So why Luke then? Why, of all the four Gospels, why are we going to Luke? We're going to it for that in-depth, forensic, orderly account of who Jesus is, what he did, and what that means about who we are and what we do now as his followers and as his church. Secondly, Luke's gospel does great at highlighting Jesus' humanity. Matthew is concerned with him being Messiah. John is concerned with showing Jesus' eternal scope. That's why at the very beginning of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's showing that Jesus did not simply begin to exist at the moment of conception, but has been around, you know, before Abraham was, I am, right? And um, Luke really highlights the humanity of Christ, this second nature of, of Jesus being his humanness. And and we see also in Luke's gospel that there's an emphasis as we walk through um, Jesus' interactions with people. We, we see that 
the issue that Luke is dealing with is not religion, but it's about the heart. And we'll see that Luke highlights in all these different interactions that Jesus has with people and even in his uh, parables, these 24 parables that we're going to walk through uh, as he heals people, um, that we're going to see how that the issue at hand is not religion, people adopting a certain behavior or modifying their lives, but really it's a matter of the heart and their lives being changed from the inside out and not them trying to change the outside to hopefully affect the inside. And that is absolutely in step and in line with the gospel. Uh, Thirdly, and this is something that we're kind of excited about, is in Luke's gospel, there is a lot of eating. And I know that may sound just funny and weird and how untheological, but you're going to see it as we walk through the Gospel of Luke. There is a ton of eating in this book. And, um, and why is that important to us? Well, it's important to us because we've structured Redemption Hill around what we call missional communities. And the one thing we've asked these missional communities to be faithful to uh, month in and month out is eating together. I mean, how spiritual is that? It might be more spiritual than you think. Um, And we're literally asking people to share these meals together. And it's going to be awesome as we watch Jesus literally. uh, In fact, uh, Robert Karras says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal at a meal, or coming from a meal. And so it's almost as if the entire context of Luke's gospel and all the interactions that happen are interwoven through all of these meals. Now, some of this might uh, point to these eyewitness interviews that Luke is having. Because imagine, well, when did that happen? Well, I don't know, but I remember we were on our way to go eat at so-and-so's house, right? And Luke, being the good doctor, writing the orderly accounts, like, here we go. They're eating again, and it's right in there, right? Or I remember when we were eating at so-and-so's house that this happened. Or, man, I don't know when that happened, but I know we had just left this meal at this house over here or whatever. And it may or may not point to those, but it's, it's easy to see how uh, that is easily, a, a, it's an easily drawn conclusion that as people are recounting these things, how are they remembering them? They're remembering them in the context, hear me, of the community and the relationship that they shared with Jesus and the other disciples. So here's a, a question. How are we going to remember the memories that we make and create together as a church body and family? I'm almost going to guarantee you that it's going to happen through the context of these meals that we share together. Even as I think back, and I didn't grow up with a missional community structured church, but I can tell you right now, the things that I remember growing up as it pertains to memories and community almost always involve food. (laughs) Almost always involve food. Now, some of those are hard memories because some of those are wakes. Some of those are 
happy memories because they're weddings or um, church potlucks or church picnics that we'd all go out to the park and share this meal and play baseball or football or whatever. I remember those things, but I can't get away from the fact that almost all of them involve food. And of the ones that don't necessarily involve a meal in the traditional sense, some of the most poignant, powerful memories that I have in worship are connected to the sacrament of communion. And so even there, I will remember certain moments in time and worship and ministry that was going on in the church And I remember it because it was right after we had communion or it was right before we had communion. And then God did something special in our church family. And so while it may seem silly to go, man, we're excited because there's a lot of eating in the book of Luke. And maybe it's silly. Maybe it's not so silly. And maybe it's not so unspiritual. And maybe there's a reason when Luke gets to writing Acts and he gets to chapter 2 and he writes verses 42 through 47, he is careful to show us that the liturgy, the organized worship of the church included sharing meals together. And so we're really excited about that. And so as we journey through this, and again, we we got a long road ahead of us. But as we go, we're going to highlight, hey, don't forget, look here, what's happening here? It's a meal. They're sharing a meal together. Or notice how they remembered when this was happening. They had just left this meal that they shared together. And the food imagery is going to start much sooner than you may think. So get ready even in the next couple of weeks. Uh, to check that out. It's going to be fun. And so with that, we have that resource that, um, that Brian mentioned, Meals with Jesus, which literally walks through the book of Luke, highlighting the meals that Jesus shared with people and how it relates to what it means to be the body of Christ and the family of God and the church in community together. So that's going to be fun. So I want to quickly just walk through these verses. Um, That's kind of why Luke, and let's walk through and get the meat of what's going on here. Uh, Verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been compiled, excuse me, accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word Uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, uh, just again, one more note to Luke's education. That is one amazing compound sentence. All four verses, one Amazing compound sentence. Uh, Verse 1, it says, just want to highlight a few things here. Many have undertaken to compile. Here we know that, that this is not the first gospel, and Luke is aware of that. He's not writing this to say uh, they got it wrong, and I'm here to set the record straight. That's not what he's doing. Um, he is simply here 
Why? Because it seemed good to me, verse 3, uh, and uh, he had been following all things closely for some time past. So you see that, that Luke has been studying this. This wasn't something that he just got a whim of. It's something that he's been looking at closely. Uh, the uh, time stamp on the book of Luke is presumably around A.D. 62. And so possibly around 30 years has gone by since Jesus' um, whole ministry, around that time, give or take three years. Now, some people say, if this was so important, why didn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or whoever else, why did they wait as long as two or more decades before they start writing the account of what Jesus did? Well, part of the reason for that is because the apostles lived and thought, they lived in such a way and thought that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And so they were quite happy just to tell everybody about it, right? This is current news for some time. And there's this immediacy to it, this sort of impending sort of just urgency to this gospel message. And the apostles really believed, and you can hear it in their writing, you can hear it in what Peter wrote, that Jesus is... is quite possibly, presumably, coming back in their lifetime. And you wonder how many of the 12 apostles had to die before there was kind of this moment of, maybe we should get this down on paper. Like, maybe we should spend some time interviewing and talking to the people that were there and getting it down on paper before they're not there to tell us about it anymore. I'm sure that some of you have had some urgency uh, to record in videotape or audio or uh, some of the memories and the stories of your grandparents or your parents as they have begun aging because you know that there's a time coming when those will be lost if they're not recorded for posterity's sake, right? And so we can kind of see this sort of, uh, you'll notice that if you look at all of the writings of the New Testament, a lot of them don't start until about as they approach the year 50 mark. And, and suddenly then there is this urgency to begin getting this stuff down on paper and writing it. And we see Luke going and doing this. Now, one... I don't even, I don't really want to call it application, but one, one thought that I had, even as I read this, that really just struck me. Uh, Luke is here and he says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us. How many times has God put something on your heart and you thought, man, there's so many other people that have done that. Or, I mean, with all the voices in the world, what's one more voice? What, what's my voice going to do? And I think when we think about it in those terms is when we miss the plot. When we start trying to evaluate the validity or the, the value of our own um, contributions, 
is when we're starting to look at our contributions as a means of justifying and saving ourselves. Rather, what we need to do is be obedient to what God has called us to do. And that's what Luke is doing here. Many other people have undertaken to compile. And it would have been easy for Luke to say, man, so many other people have done it. I mean, he, he wasn't a shoe-in, right, for canonization, right? He didn't write it with the intent that one day all these guys are going to get together and they're going to decide whether or not my book gets included. And doggone it, I'm a shoe-in. He doesn't know that. He simply writes it out of obedience to the Lord. The second thing that I want to draw your attention to, and so I would just encourage you, man, what is, what is God calling you to? Because you're not here by accident. You're not living this life by accident. I believe in God's sovereign plan and design. He intended you, whether no one else did or not. And there are things that he has had planned for you since long, long ago because you are his masterpiece that he created and he has good things, good works that he has planned for you. Not so that you can get credit, but so that he can. And so if there's something that God's calling you to and you're going, man, so many other people, so many other voices, what? stop evaluating it. Be obedient to what God has called you to do. I mean, we could have done that here. Would have been easy to go, man, we live in the Bible Belt. San Antonio has plenty of churches. Why one more church? Why Redemption Hill? And I have one answer for you because it was the only way that we could be obedient to what we felt God was calling us to do. The end. It wasn't about evaluating our message versus someone else's or, or you know, if, if we go in this geographical area, it, it was nothing. You know why we're here? Because I live three minutes away. And we felt God calling us to be incarnational, be faithful with what he's put in our hands and that he would be faithful with what he's put in our hearts. It's obedience. Quit evaluating what God has called you to do and just be obedient and trust him with the results. Because he's the one that gives the harvest. Amen? I'll be careful. I'll start preaching. <laughs> Second thing I want to draw your attention to is Luke uses careful language here in that verse 1 again. Things that have been accomplished among us. Would have been easy for him to say, wanted to compile a narrative of everything Jesus did in the sense that he lived and he did stuff. But Luke uses careful language here when he says, the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, there's purpose behind the doing. It's not just arbitrary, Jesus did stuff. It's missional in the sense that God sent his son to accomplish a purpose and Jesus accomplished the purpose. And so we say something a lot that if we're not careful can become lost on us and become Christianese, but I don't want it to. I want it to have meaning and depth for you. So when we say rest in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, what we are referring to is the fact that all the doing that needed to be done for the mission to be accomplished was completed by Jesus. And we have the record. 
And that means we can rest. Why? Because all the doing that needs to be done has been done. In, in terms of our salvation, in terms of our justification, in terms of there being peace and not enmity between us and God. If you believe, let me, let me just qualify that. If you don't believe, there's still enmity between you and God. But as the Holy Spirit gives you faith to believe that what Christ did, he did for you, and that it was perfect and it was enough, that enmity between you and God is gone immediately. Immediately. And there's nothing left for you to do to try and earn peace with God because Christ has already done it. The things we do now, so to reach back to Galatians uh, that we spent so much time in here recently, Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Jesus Christ or even by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so, the doing that we do now is not connected to our justification, our salvation, peace with God, any of that. Our doing now is connected to each other. Why? Because God doesn't need your good works. He planned good works for you to do for his glory and for the good of the people around you. And so as you do good works... Your doing is not for you, and it's not for your eternal place. That doing was done by Christ. Your doing now is for the good of others and the people around you. Because God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Amen? So there are things that have been accomplished, and so I want you to see that. I want you to hear that even in the first verse of Luke's gospel, he's already proclaiming the gospel, the good news, that all the doing that needs to be done has been done, and Jesus did it. Amen? Uh, verse 2, uh, he says, Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And so again, we see here, Luke is going to eyewitnesses. He's not going to random people on the street. So tell me, were you around in the days of Jesus? What did you think about what was going on? Luke is going to specific people. He's spending time with specific people to gain from them an eyewitness account of the things that happened when they were with Jesus. Um, he also says ministers of the word. Another way that you could translate that is literally proclaimers of the gospel. There are certain things that Theophilus has been taught. What has Theophilus been taught? Why is it so important to go back and investigate and then record an orderly account of the things that have been accomplished? One, because it's not just doing that's been, it's not just stuff that's been done. There was a mission that had to be accomplished, right? So what is it that Theophilus has been taught and he needs to be certain of? It's the gospel. It's the fact that religion is dead and Jesus lives. And if that wasn't true, Theophilus is in trouble. 
And so just like Paul writes his letter to the Galatians to remind them that the gospel is true and the doing has been done, Jesus spread his arms on a cross and said, it is finished. Theophilus needs to be certain that the gospel he's believing in that's not requiring anything of him and is completely scandalous is actually true. And so Luke is recording this so that he can have certainty that this scandalous message of good news, that there's nothing that he must do to earn favor with God, is in fact true. And the way they're going to know it's true is if that message lines up with Jesus' life and his teaching. Because if the message of the gospel doesn't line up with Jesus' life and teaching, then we've got a problem. Again, interesting to note that in Luke's gospel specifically, we see him highlighting the fact that it's not about outward religious activity, but it's about an inward place of transformation of the heart that can only be done by God through the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, having followed closely, has this connotation of investigation, an orderly account. Again, the doctor doing the good doctor's work, right? Systematically, orderly, scientifically even, recording this account. Verse 4, and again, the number one reason why we are going through the book of Luke, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I believe in assurance, but I do not believe that there is anything that you can do that can give you assurance that the gospel you have received is in fact the truth. However, I believe in what the Word of God says, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it is my prayer that over the next 21 months or however long it ends up taking us, that as we walk through the book of Luke and we proclaim the gospel week in and week out, that the Holy Spirit will do the work of giving certainty to you regarding and concerning the things you have been taught in the gospel. That we would all 21 months from now look back and say, wow, I have fallen more in love with my Savior than I have ever been before. I see him more fully. I understand him more deeply. And he has become more beautiful to me than anything else in this world. That is my prayer as we journey through this book. And I believe that it was the prayer of Luke And I believe that it was his prayer because it was the Holy Spirit that inspired him to write it. And it's the Holy Spirit that has compelled us to take a long-lasting look at this gospel record. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for doing whatever had to be done to compel Luke to pick up pen and parchment and begin to record these things that he had been looking at for so long already. 
God, I know it was not a mistake. It was not happenstance. It was not an accident that he happened to be looking at these things. God, you were drawing his attention, drawing his affections, and calling him to do a work, God, that would not only be a blessing and a means of grace for those who were around to receive it when the wet was ink when the ink was wet but god it is a blessing and a means of grace to us today almost 2000 years later to be able to have this eyewitness account lord an orderly account that we may have certainty regarding the things we've been taught about our savior Jesus, wreck us. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in our hearts. Give us more and more faith to believe that everything we need in Christ we already possess, and it's ours because of your grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.